Hey, do you know what you call somebody who's happy that it's Monday? Retired. Robin and Rose are retired. Rose is already retired, but she's retiring from this portion of life. Uh, they're retiring in August, and there's a party on the 18th. There's probably information in your bulletin. I know there's information on our website if you want to go there now. If you haven't RSVP'd, it's past time. We need you to RSVP immediately for Robin's retirement party. That's also Rose's retirement party. So we have a fun way that we're going to uh, remember all of the time we've had with Robin and Rose, nearly 40 years of ministry, and that is a hashtag. Now, you, you're free to share this like directly to their face, but this is also fun. Uh, Maybe you want to share uh, some more really bad jokes. You know, we've got a hashtag for that. Uh, sometime um, someone said the best thing about retirement is doing nothing all day, every day, and having no fear of getting caught. Maybe you want to just add more bad jokes about retirement. Maybe you have been retired and you have pro tips for those who are newly retired, and you might like to share that using this hashtag. It is already on Facebook and Maybe some of you use the gram, and you might want to use that hashtag there as well. So Gwen Hartman and her team have developed this hashtag. It will also allow you to do very simple things like share a photo. But the neat thing about hashtags, without having to go into things I don't even understand, is if you put this hashtag on there, we'll all get to see it develop together. So Maybe you'll be on a road trip and have a flat tire, and you'll want to take a photo of you and your family with a flat tire. God help me. I hope that's not you. And say, hey, Robin, tips for what to not do in hashtag RT retirement. Maybe you have a photo of a memory that was just fantastic, and it was, you know, the photo's kind of fuzzy, and it looks a little prehistoric, but it reminds you of this great time, and you want to share that. We would all like to see it. So hashtagging it, RT Retirement, will help us all to see that if you share it or choose to share it on some place like Facebook or Instagram. So uh, last example of a fantastic joke, what do retirees call a long lunch? Lunch, that's, yeah, I've, I've seen lunch, I've seen Tuesday, and I've seen normal. So There's some punchlines for you. Maybe you've got way more bad jokes than I do about retirement. Share them all using this hashtag, RTRetirement, and that way we'll all get to experience the fun of remembering Robin and Rose and their many years of ministry here together. Important, make sure you're RSVP'd. That can be done on our website. So uh, the first encounter I remember being responsible, don't worry, you don't need to read anything that's on here. It's a train map of a subway in Washington, D.C. The first one I remember being responsible for making sure my family got from point A to point B on a subway was in Washington, D.C. And uh, it had a ton, and you can see that on this map. It has a gajillion stops here on the Shady Grove line. A gajillion. But there's only two destinations. A gajillion stops and only two destinations. Now, in the case of Washington, D.C., you're going to see here on the legend, we've zoomed it in here for you. You don't need to read it, but you need to understand we've got the red line, which goes to Glenmont and Shady Grove. So if you're going towards Glenmont, you're going to be on the red line, Glenmont. 
And this is so rudimentary for people who have grown up in a city like uh, Washington, D.C. that has a subway or another city that may have a train. But the point being, sometimes the, the train line or the subway line or the bus line is the name of the final station, the name of the destination. That is all you need to take away from that. So I'm really flustered, really busy. We have very young children. I would guess it was like 10, 8, and 6 or something like that. And children had just been stolen in Washington, D.C. like the day before. We decided to tour 12 miles worth of hiking and touristing around Washington, D.C. And we get back onto the subway. And I'm just a little tired and a, a little jumpy. And I hear the announcement that we're on the red line Glenmont. And I think immediately that means that we're at the end of the line. And the truth is, we're really not at the end of the line. But you can bet I was up. And oh my gosh, we've missed our stop. And we had not missed our stop. The point being, sometimes the train stops and stations can be a good picture for what our life is like. If, if it were true that we're at the end of the stop, we just would have stayed on the train and would have gone back to the stop we needed to be at. Life isn't always like that, though. Life has a series of locations, and life has one final destination. We'll connect the dots in just a second. Maybe you're on a staycation this summer. Maybe you've already done it. Maybe you're going on a vacation. Maybe on your staycation, you're thinking about how you just wish that you could smell that fresh mountain air, or you could experience that sand in your toes and the waves crash in on the ocean. And you don't particularly love your current location the problem being, we often believe that our current location is our final destination. So say it with me, Georgetown. We often believe our current location is our final destination. This really comes into play for almost each one of us when we're facing something challenging or difficult or troubling. And maybe for you, it's a project at work for which you're responsible and it's massive, but you don't have the resources. You have all of the responsibility and you don't have the required resources. And the delta there is just very stressful. And maybe for you, it is a, a second or a third interview for a job that is going to change your family's life. Maybe it means that you'll get to move closer to the family you've been trying to get back to. Maybe it means the, the work you've always wanted to do, and you become fixated. And whether it's the project or the interview, or whether it's the college or university you're trying to get into, or whether it's a project at the end of school, or one that was supposed to take place in the summer, and now school's starting, we begin to turn inward. We begin to focus on ourselves, we begin to almost like eat and sleep and wake and breathe just the thing that's in front of our face because we often believe that our current location is our final destination. We just get fixated on this thing that is right here in our face. So what if instead, like a train or like a subway or in some cases, a bus line, we saw the project, or the, the problem, or maybe the big life change, where you never expected this person to be in long-term care, and now they don't live at home anymore. They live in long-term care. 
maybe we begin to see that through a different lens, and maybe we name, maybe we name our current location instead of stressful, painful, lonely, which are still true. Maybe we see them in light of our final destination, just like a subway or a train. Maybe we name it for what it is, just a station in a larger journey. Peter says our current location is not our final destination. We were just through the book of 2 Peter, I believe, last year. Peter calls each of us believers, followers of Jesus, family members, the the body of Christ. He calls us a couple of things, depending on the translation. He could call you a foreigner. He could call you a, a stranger, an exile, an alien. His point being, this, our current situation, is not our final destination. It's not even our home. Last two weeks, we discovered that David was in a cave, and that's in 1 Samuel chapter 22, and it's following a really difficult time of David's life. And we see that David responds in three ways, the first of which is praise, the second of which is testimony, and the third of which is teaching about the Lord. So David responds in those ways when he finds himself stuck in a cave and pursued by a king for his very life. Now today, we learn two travel tips because David's finally leaving the cave. We learn two travel tips, two travel tips for faithful believers who don't want to confuse their, their current location with their final destination. So we're going to learn two travel tips. And I want you to say the first one with me. Are you guys ready? One, two, three. Our current location is preparation for a final destination. Okay, so if you're opening your Bibles, I want to invite you, of course, you can turn to some of those scriptures you saw listed earlier, but I also want to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You're not behind. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read two verses. They'll also be on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews, now we'll get to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in just a second. But the writer of Hebrews says that, and I'm talking about the writer of Hebrews kind of summarizing, just taking a quick look back at everything he just wrote to these Christians who are struggling to maintain their faithfulness. He's sort of summarizing this passage we'll call Hall of Faith. It's just a pit stop in, in what he's writing. And, and he's saying that everybody I just wrote about, all of these people like Abraham and Moses and Noah, all of those people, they were all faithful to the Lord. And they believed that this was not their home. The writer of Hebrews says that in their hearts, They knew that there was another country, that there was another home, and they looked forward to that. They realized their current location was not their final destination. They died knowing that. And in knowing that even in death, their current location was not their final destination, They maintained hope. 
And they were an example of hope, even today as we remember them. But at the time, for those that knew them. And that's a glimpse into what we're looking at today. If you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul called his troubles and ours, because this letter to Corinth is also applicable for our lives and this church, he called them big air quotes here because I'm not this level of Christian. I don't know about you guys. He calls them our light and momentary troubles. Oh gosh, this guy has lots of big troubles. Beatings is normal for Paul. So he calls them light and momentary troubles. I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Now he saw these troubles or these afflictions. He saw them as also preparing you and preparing me. So I want to read from verse 17. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Paul keeps, in spite of his current situation, he keeps an eternal perspective on the difficulties through which he lives. Paul believes furthermore that the trouble and the challenge and the difficulty that he's walking through, maybe sludging and trudging and dragging unwilling feet through muck, he maintains the belief that it is, it is actually working towards something that is good for him. He believes that not only his current location is not the final destination, but he's also adding to the balance of something that is incomprehensible, but happens in the final outcome, we would call it eternity. You might refer to it as heaven. He knew his current location is preparation for a final destination. And maybe that's a tongue twister. We're going to say it so many times this morning that it's going to stop being twisty and start to settle in our hearts as truth. Paul believed his current location was preparation for a final destination. I'm working towards a garden and I know that many of you are working towards a garden because I've already shared with you the things that aren't going right with my garden. If you, as a gardener, or even as a part-time helper in the garden, may be recruited by your parents, even, even at that level, you can understand something as simple as if you believed that the current uh, a station, to use a train metaphor, the current station in your garden was the destination, then you might give up when it's time to till or it's time to weed, especially last week when it was not cold. You might give up when you're battling against bugs and, and bacteria and bunnies and you've done all of that work and all of that toil and all you have to show for it is some partially chewed leaves and really no fruit. So if you gave up when you're just at your current location, losing focus of the final destination, friends, what is it for you? For, for me, it's something like very buttery and salty sweet corn, and we get to call it a vegetable. Uh, for me, also, it might be fire-roasted salsa. That's a dream. It could be cucumbers and onions that sit in vinegar for 
just a little while. Uh, maybe for you, it's freshly snapped beans that on, in minutes are on your dining room table. But if you, if you believed for a moment in the midst of the difficulty of your garden, even if you're just recruited by mom and dad or grandma and grandpa, if you believe for one minute that the sweat and the toil that you're in is the final destination, you've lost focus. Now, Paul is a word master. Paul can string together word after word after word to communicate anything he wants. He's responsible for very large portion of the New Testament. Luke actually writes more. But Paul is responsible for so much of our New Testament. And yet, here, he says, uh, in our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And then look what Paul says. He says, beyond all comparison. Now, if Paul was writing to me, and he wanted to make a comparison, he might say something like, look, these difficulties, they're preparing for you something that is so much greater. He might use a metaphor that communicates so clearly to me, maybe it does to you, it speaks to my heart, I feel this is the language the Lord would use for me. He would say, it prepares for you a buffet of New York style, St. Louis style, Chicago style, Detroit style pizza that has no calories in it. With every piece you eat, the benefit is actually brain cells and biceps. And I would understand completely what Paul was trying to say is waiting for me beyond my light and momentary afflictions. But Paul says beyond all comparison. And this is a guy with, that's really good with words. The point being, Paul doesn't want to stay focused on the current location. He, he believes it's prep preparing us for a final destination. And Jesus was another great example of a person just like Paul, because Paul learned from Jesus. Jesus knew his current location is a preparation for a final destination. Jesus is God. Jesus is God's son. Jesus becomes a man. So therefore, Jesus has to live on earth for a while as God, the man. So Jesus, as he's living on earth, he goes through all kinds of trial and trouble and difficulty and what Paul would call light and momentary affliction. And if you're going through it right now, it doesn't feel light and it doesn't feel momentary and it doesn't feel like just a little affliction. It feels like the world is ending. This is my destination and it's doom. That's what it feels like. But Jesus set the example for Paul, and he lived in such a way that he lived with purpose. He lived fixed with his eyes on a goal. On the end of the train line, in spite of the number of stations that Jesus would travel through in his life, his eyes were fixed on a goal. Jesus and his disciple, Paul, in the midst of the light and momentary afflictions, were able to accomplish work because their sights were fixed, not on their current location, but on a destination. So we can do the same provided we remain focused. Uh, I've got a horrible joke about focus, and then I've got a phenomenal joke also about focus. I want you guys to focus on it and decide which one is better. 
I just quit my job to begin prospecting for gold. I'm still waiting to see how it pans out. Okay, one, one, and maybe some laughs, maybe some dads taking notes for I'm going to tell my kids at dinner and they're going to suffer because I'm going to explain it six times. Um, Just a pro tip there. Uh, Harry and Meghan, the royal couple, announced that they are stepping away from the royal family to pursue and focus on their work. Maybe the first time in history someone said that they're going to quit their family to spend more time on their job. All right. So you guys are all focusing right now. I get it. You're just focusing, and that's what we have to... I I gave you two terrible jokes, okay? I mean, one was a dad joke that's going to get lots of mileage. I can promise you. But the other one's just terrible. I don't know why they call it a joke. The point is, you, during the time that I'm telling, two jokes are focusing. You're intently focused on a joke and a joke, and you're going to discern by the power of your will and your intellect and with your heart, you're going to intuit which one of these jokes is the funnier. And it doesn't take a lot of brain power for us to focus on something like that while we walk through our daily lives. But it is painful sometimes to realize that while our current situation is filled with trial, is filled with difficulty, it's filled with discomfort, it's filled with separation from the idea we had in our mind that it's not our final destination. When we're out of focus, we begin to think we're stuck in the wrong spot, that we're in the wrong spot, and that God then therefore has put us or allowed us to be in the wrong place. And we can begin to focus back inward, and we can begin to become self-absorbed or another uh, big scary word that we don't like to use, egocentric. We can begin to do what we've even invented a word in our culture or a phrase called navel gazing so that it's not as offensive, but it just means kind of like contemplating my own life and all of the difficulty I have or maybe how amazing I am. Whatever it is, it's really like narcissism or egocentrism that we're talking about. So um, how many egotistical people does it take to change a light bulb? You know the answer, but you can't tell me why. It takes just one. They hold the light bulb, and then the world turns around them. Okay, maybe some redemption in that one. I know I'm going to hear about your kids not liking my jokes, because you're going to tell them at home, and I'm proud of you. We have to not slip into the the self-reflective navel gaze, the egocentric, self-absorbed, Probably, if we're honest, we, in, we invented a phrase that's a little less, a little less, what would you call it, offensive than, hey, you're a narcissist. Hey, you're a navel gazer. Doesn't carry that same weight. But I think we invented that because we all struggle with it. We all begin to look at our current situation and believe that it is actually our final destination. And it's not. It's preparation. Here's what New Testament authors say all through the New Testament, and I'm going to give you some true statements, and then I'm going to give you the way that we interpret it in light of our our little current location that, as Paul says, is only a light and momentary trouble. Okay, true statement. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Our interpretation sometimes. uh, Fix your eyes on your current location because it's really hard. 
uh, walk in step with the Spirit, or the way we might interpret it, uh, just walk in light of the current situation and do the thing that's best for me right now because this feels like it's the very end and I may not survive. Uh, another one, if you love me and you obey my command, you will obey my commands. Or the way we might interpret it when we're fixed on our current situation, if I love Jesus, I should do what feels good right now only and not be concerned with how I change as a person into less of someone like Jesus, but just do what feels good for me to do right now. Another way in the New Testament puts this, and this is Jesus' words, and he puts it so plainly, if you want to save your life, you will lose it. If you want to lose your life for my sake, you will save it. And then our interpretation is so far off of that mark, it sounds a lot more like, you see, Jesus, in light of my current circumstances, uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons I can't focus on you. Uh, you don't understand how very challenging life is right now on a tight budget. Things are stressful at work. My neighbors are not the greatest. And sometimes my family says and does things I don't really like. So I'm not going to be able to lay down my life for you because right now I've got a whole list of reasons that are really more important than laying down my life for you. That is literally how you lose your life. You folk, you navel gaze, you, you egocentrize, you self-absorb, and you make everything in your current situation about yourself. Instead, Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians, and I'm still in chapter 4, verse 18. Now look at what Paul's looking at. As we look not to the things that are seen... But the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are, are transient. Our life is a mist. They're here one day and they're gone the next. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you see Paul's perspective shift from to a final destination? We're looking at the end of a subway line when we're just at a station. Our current situation should be seen in the light of the final destination. Uh, on a trip one time with Andrea, we encountered uh, an extra difficult transfer. Train to bus, bus to train to bus to get where we're trying to go. Uh, we had done, uh, in New York City, we had done multi-level, uh, multimodal transfers from train to bus and levels and it was complicated, and we felt really like we had done it all when we made it to the ride that we were trying to take. So not only in this instance was it multi-everything, but, but then with our eyes, we're looking at Google Maps, and it tells you when this bus is supposed to be here, and we're looking at the stop where the bus is supposed to be at the time it's supposed to be there, and there's no bus. There's not an early bus, a late bus. There's no bus, and we're looking at the trains that are supposed to be at these other stops, and there's not a late or early train. There's no train, and so we're getting a little nervous because Google Maps is really not helping us out anymore, and it's what we've used it's our only way forward. We're, you could say we're in a pickle because we're far away from where we're staying and we're way out in a place we don't have a place to stay and public transport is our only option other than hoofing it. 
So we were, uh, you could say, on an adventure now. We were on an adventure because my phone battery's dying, and the situation was becoming very stressful and frustrating. Nothing was looking like it was supposed to look, and we were not looking like we were going to do anything but hike all night. Andrea reminds me, in the midst of this difficulty, that our current location, and she didn't say it this way, but it was not our final destination. Our final destination in this, in this story was just leisure. It was just relaxing. It was just rest. And this was just another stop where we were going to try to have leisure time, have fun, enjoy ourselves. And once we realized that wasn't going to happen, we got on the bus that took us there. And we went back to the train that took us where we needed to stay. But for one moment, we thought it was all over. We were lost. We were without any hope of a ride back. There was no Uber. We were just walking all night and all day the next day and then hoping for another bus. It wasn't instant, but gradually my focus as travel planner guy, who always gets it right most of the time, as travel planner guy, my focus began to change from this single moment to the whole trip. It was from my current location to our final destination, which was leisure. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 57, 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I'll sing and make melody. That's David. That's David in the cave at Adullam. It's another psalm he writes in this cave where he's being pursued for death by the king of Israel. David does not believe his current location is his final destination. In fact, he believes it's preparation. David knows. David is focused even while he's walking through the difficulty of the fact that he lives in a cave and the king is after him. David is focused on God. And we talked about that two weeks ago, and we talked about that last week, and now finally we observe that David writes four different psalms. In each psalm, David does not confuse his location with his final destination. In each psalm, David does not get caught in navel-gazed self-absorption. David praises God. David elevates his name. David magnifies and boasts in the name of the Lord, and he writes four psalms to do it. Listen to the way the King James says the same psalm. My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. Another psalm David writes. Listen to what he says. But my eyes are fixed on you, sovereign Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not give me over to death. Because David, because Paul, because Jesus are able to understand that their current location is preparation for a final destination, they are then able to bring about the good news of the kingdom of God. I'll say that just, I'll say that again. Because David, because Jesus, because Paul are able to remain focused on the final destination, then their current location can just be preparation for the final destination. That allows them then, in the midst of trial, 
to continue spreading the hope and the love that they themselves have received, or in Jesus' case, that he is. Psalm 142, David says this, Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. This psalm also written from the cave. He doesn't lose himself in self-pity. He does lose himself in crying out to God. He doesn't lose himself in self-pity, navel-gazing, egocentricity, self-absorption. My troubles are worse than your troubles. But he does lose himself. Four psalms written in a cave. He loses himself in crying out to God. But David's, David's ability to focus on God in that trial allows us to move to step number two. Our current location is someone else's preparation for a final destination. I want you guys to read that with me. Our current location is someone else's preparation for a final destination. And it's David's ability to not turn inward, to not navel gaze, to not be the only guy who can put that light bulb in. David's capacity to see that this current situation might be someone else's preparation means that two groups of people have salvation. That's his family, and that's the mighty men. And they're not mighty men yet, but we'll see how they become that way. So I want to read from 1 Samuel chapter 22. How many of you guys thought that we were not going to be in 1 Samuel today? Does somebody think, you come in here and think we're going to not be in 1 Samuel because we're in 1 Samuel. Surprise, I waited 20 minutes to get there, but we're in 1 Samuel chapter 22, and I'm only going to do two verses, and they're going to be right here on the screen. Uh, and we're remembering David left Gath, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. So that's group number one. Now let's discover group number two who was also in this cave. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. Now David understands in the midst of this that his current location is someone else's preparation for their final destination. I said earlier we reviewed that David is, he's known for three things in this time in the cave, and we see that in Psalm 34. But before we get to those three things, just to review again, David can see past his personal problems. He still has them. They're still painful. He's still being chased by King Saul. Saul has an army. David has a cave and some guys, and now his family showed up. So you might say, things are really out of balance here. Because not only does David not have an army, his family is now with him. So things got even worse than they were before. David can see through the midst of this trouble that other people need hope. Other people need hope just like David needs hope. And we remember that David responds in three ways. He responds in praise to God. He responds in, te 
and testimony about the Lord's faithfulness, and he responds in teaching about the Lord. And I believe that that is how these mighty men become mighty, because we just saw that they were distressed, and they were discontent, and they were in debt. That's not mighty. That's the antithesis of, that's not a word. That's the antithesis. There you go, the wrong syllable. That is the opposite entirely of what a mighty man would be. We'll see in just a second the mighty men. But let's go first through David's uh, family that he serves. David is able to serve his family, to bring them hope. And we see this as you continue reading. We see that because David acts as though his current location is maybe someone else's preparation for their final destination, we see that David is able to care for his family. So if you're reading down through there, I'm just going to summarize what we see happen. Not all of chapter 22, but I want to summarize what happens with his family. We see they show up at the cave. Now, why would they show up at the cave? Because if some of you are thinking back, it's true that, remember when David came to the line, the battle line, the Valley of Elah with Goliath and the battle against the Philistines? His brothers didn't really love him. Remember when Samuel came to the house in Bethlehem to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as a king? His father didn't think of him. So you could be thinking, how on earth, why on earth would David's family come to this cave? And now David have an opportunity to share with them hope in a practical sense. That's a very good question. I'm glad you asked. So the reason that we believe, I believe, I'm not saying everyone believes, The reason I believe they came here is because later as David's recounting the acts of his mighty men, this is David's retirement party. At David's retirement party, he spends sentence after sentence just lifting up the name of the Lord. And then, in shorter amount, but still a large amount of sentences, David begins recounting the acts of his his mighty men, and then his 30 chiefs, and then what's called the three. And what we see in that account at David's retirement, what we see in that account is David remembers this time that one of the three, I'm sorry, the three, one of the three took other men, not the three. One of the three of all the mighty men took some men and they broke through a Philistine garrison in the town of Bethlehem. Now, where is David from? The answer is Bethlehem. Where is David from? Awesome. So if the, Philist, if the Philistines have a garrison in Bethlehem and they break through to get water from the gate at Bethlehem and bring it back to their leader, David, where is David when this is happening? He's in the cave when they go to Bethlehem and break through a what garrison? Philistine garrison. It sounds to me like the hometown of David's family is now under Philistine control. It sounds to me like Saul has gone so off his rocker, he's so intent on murdering David that he's lost control of Bethlehem. Friends, that's really close to Paul's palace. Miles, less than a two-day trip. Maybe a day trip if you're young and fit like David. So David's family, who is from, the answer is Bethlehem. Where are they from? Bethlehem, and Saul has lost control of Bethlehem. It's under Philistine control. They have no hope. 
They go to David, to whom formerly it appeared that there wasn't a great family relationship. But now, because David's not so wrapped up in his current location that he can't see anyone else, he can understand that their current location might be someone else's preparation for a final destination. And so he takes care of his family. He goes to the city of Moab. He goes to the king of Moab, which seems unusual, right? Uh, We definitely just went to Gath, and that was bad news. Now David's going to the king of Moab. Now, why on earth would David go there? I don't know that this is true. I do believe that it might be true. Do you remember David's father? His name was Jesse. Say, Jesse. Yes, so David had a father named Jesse. You guys are on this. And Jesse had a grandmother. That would be David's great-grandmother. How many of you played on the floor of your grandmother's house growing up? Hey, if you guys are awake, raise your hand if you played on the floor or in the yard of your grandmother's house. Okay, so you guys know what it's like to play in grandma's floor. Jesse might have been playing in the floor of a woman named Ruth who was from Moab. Maybe. We don't know that. We just know that David's great-grandmother was Ruth. So maybe there's a connection, and maybe that's why he goes there. And we don't know for sure, but we do know that because David is willing to look past his own trial and trouble, that he is able now to minister to, to serve, to stand in the gap for a group of people called his family who have no other hope. And he's able to provide for them because, remember, he's the youngest of a bunch of brothers. We don't know about sisters. He's the youngest, and these parents are probably not young. So in their advanced age, David is now able to provide for them because the king of Moab is going to take care of them. Now imagine if David was so egocentric, he couldn't even see their family when they showed up because he's so busy looking at his own issues. But instead, we see that David's family is saved by going to live with the king of Moab while David says, while I see what God will do for me. Then we also see that his family is saved. Uh, Before we go on to number two, we also see that his family is saved because his cousin Abishai is the first one to raise his hand when David says, I'm in the cave, but uh, I'm not in the cave. I'm out of the cave. Who's going with me to Saul's camp? And Abishai's like, me, 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 me. I want to go. I want to go to Saul's camp with you. And this is David and Abishai who go to Saul's camp. So David also provides an opportunity for his cousin Abishai to become part of not just the mighty men, not just the 30, but part of the three. But it's all because David was willing to look past his own problems, to praise God, to give testimony about what he's done in his life, and to teach those who God is sending him about the Lord. So finally, this is the the last group of people that David serves because uh, he's able to act as though his, his current location is someone else's preparation for a final destination. Remember that the debtors and the distraught and the distressed and the discontented and all of the bad D things that make these people want to come to the cave where David is, they all come out to David and it sounds like a ragtag group of people who come with just issues. And if you read Psalm 57 and 141 and 142, I can assure you that is exactly who they were. They were not the best of guys. They, in fact, David prays over and over in these Psalms, God, please keep my tongue from evil, my feet from evil, my hands from evil, my mind from evil. These are not great guys that were sent out to David, but because of David's willingness to not just be focused on his current issues, he was able then to issue hope to people who were broken. 
So if you remember, I was talking about David's retirement. I just want to remind you that they, they witnessed David in this cave, maybe writing these psalms, but definitely, because remember Psalm 34 was an acrostic. It was written as a way to remember. I think David just went from campfire to campfire to campfire to campfire and said, I want to praise God here, and then I want to move into a time of sharing my testimony, and then I want to teach each of you about the Lord. And gradually these men garnered not only some of maybe the respect and honor they had for David as a leader when he was under Saul, but now they were beginning to see why David was the leader he was because his hope and his trust was firmly placed in the Lord. It was never determined by his circumstance. It was never determined by the issue that was directly in front of him, but his eyes were fixed on a destination beyond the one that they were in, a cave. With family, what do we do? Well, we provide hope. So here's uh, at the end of David's retirement, I was telling you that he was blessing and praising the Lord for verse after verse. And then there were some more verses And it was about these very men who came to David looking for hope because they were distressed and distraught and discouraged. They wanted nothing to do with the life they lived before. But now they're called, at the end of 2 Samuel, at David's retirement, they're called David's mighty men. And they were fighting battles for the God of Israel. David was able to lead men who had absolutely no hope. In fact, they were in debt. They were below the zero line. He was able to lead them. He was able to prepare them for a final destination in spite of his current location. Uh, How do we apply this to our lives? How does this apply to Georgetown Christian Church? Uh, Number one, we're going to remember that in spite of our current location, our current location is a preparation for a final destination. And I want you to say the second one with me because I think this is more of a struggle for me and for you because we can sometimes maybe look up from our problems and praise God, but sometimes we don't ever think about the fact that other people might need preparation for meeting the same Lord that we know as Savior. So I want you to say the second one with me. Our location is someone else's preparation for a final destination. As we've seen from the life of David, we've seen from the life of Paul, we've seen from the life of Jesus, we we don't want to confuse our current location with our final destination. We want to see it as Paul did. We want to see it as Jesus did, as David did. We want to see it as preparation, as paving the way when we can't get Google Maps to work when we can't understand why life is so difficult, when we can't understand how a God who loves us would let us go through difficult things, we remember then that this is not our final destination. But our current location may be preparation for a final destination. I want to tell you about a man who, uh, in the midst of great trial, he persisted in remaining focused uh, Bob faced many challenges throughout his life. He, he lived with the, the constant pull and the strain between work that demanded everything from him and a family that desperately needed him. And, and this, this strain was made more 
difficult by the fact that at home there wasn't enough money. And at work, where you get the money for home, there wasn't enough money. And on top of that, work wanted him to travel a lot. And so Bob is traveling, and he's traveling through struggle, through personal struggle, as you and I might, wondering about where is the Lord in the midst of this suffering? It's terrible here. It's terrible here. And they're both making each other worse. And so work sends him on another trip, and he goes. He flies to China in the early 1950s with really not enough money, but again, to try to solve the money problem that he experiences at work. Bob, as he traveled around China, saw the dire situation of not only families, but their children, because the the different regions he visited were war-torn, and they were plagued by natural disaster. And it was when Bob observed time after time, day after day, village after village, when Bob was able to witness children baking mud pies, not for fun, but for food, that Bob decided, I cannot any longer live in my current location. I cannot any longer believe that what I see in front of me is all there is. I cannot any longer believe that my life is the problem that I have to solve. But I have to now believe that this current location is a preparation for someone else's final destination and maybe my own as well. And in so believing those things, Bob finds the money to travel back to America where he is the director of a company he called called Youth for Christ. And he starts another company. When they don't have enough money, when fundraising doesn't go well and they're below the black, they're in the red, Bob starts another organization, and through that organization today, because of donors, probably like many of you, but because of God's faithfulness, 3.8 million children and their families have not only food and fresh water, but they have hope in the living water of Jesus Christ. But they couldn't have had that if Bob was navel-gazing, if Bob was so focused on difficult his own life was, how stressful no money at work and no money at home was, and how much trouble he was having at home and even in his own faith. But because Bob was willing to see that his current location might be someone else's preparation for the final destination, millions of people have eternal hope in Jesus Christ. Friends, I don't know what that means for you today, but I've ended, I don't know how many sermons now, asking you, if you're a believer, then I don't even need to tell you what to do. You have God the Holy Spirit at work, alive, inside your heart. Unless you have just quelled him and quashed him, in which case you you can spend this morning asking for repentance, and he will come back. Invite him back into your heart this time, this morning. Don't hear anything else I say. That's your job. If you know you have not quenched the Holy Spirit, ignored the Holy Spirit, multiple times said, I am not going to lay down my life. I am going to take it up because I think I'm saving it, because I want to be comfortable, because I'm really nervous about what I feel like God might be calling me to do. I'm going to turn and run, or I'm going to look at my navel, or I'm going to try to save my life, and thereby, what did Jesus say? Lose it. Friends, I'm confident that God the Holy Spirit is alive and he's working in your hearts. So as 
as the praise team comes out, I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to ask you, where is the current situation that you have decided is your final destination? Where do you need to see beyond something that you've decided, this isn't just a station, this is the stop. This is the end of the bus or subway line. And in fact, the Lord wants you to know it's not. Friends, I would also ask some of you maybe having a conversation with the Lord that sounds something like, you know, I'm going to give, or I'm going to serve, or I'm going to join a study or a group or an elective, or I'm going to become a regular attender who seeks membership with this body, this fellowship, this living body of Christ. But after I, whatever, pay off the car, get the second job off the calendar. Maybe you got to pay the car off and get the second job off the calendar. Maybe, maybe uh, I'm going to do that after I come to terms with uh, a family crisis that's disrupted our lives. I, I don't know what it is in your life, uh, family of God here at Georgetown, but I'm confident that the living God will tell you this morning where it is that you need to take a next step and what that next step looks like, I don't know. I can tell you that there are places to serve. There are places for you in the midst of your pain to offer hope to people that do not yet know Jesus as a savior or as their master or Lord. So it's your opportunity this morning to reflect and say, God, I'm a believer. I am filled with your Holy Spirit. I'm repenting of, of quenching your spirit, of not listening repeatedly. And I want to know if you have a place for me here. And maybe the Lord even whispers that to you, not in an audible way, but in a way that is clearly communicated to your heart, that you know there's a place for you in kids' ministry, in student ministry, in the food pantry, in facilities, in groups, in electives, in studies with men on Wednesdays coming this fall, or Tuesdays for women. Maybe it's in benevolence. Maybe it's in a ministry that he has put on your heart and the heart of another, and you're only today finding out. As you decide to come to the front or as you decide to meet with Next Steps counselors in the lobby at the Next Steps booth, Father, it's our prayer that you by your spirit would be knitting together your church even now and conforming this body of believers into your son's image that this community, that our neighborhood, that our cul-de-sacs and co-workers would see the hope that we have amidst our pain in a living Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, the invitation is open for you to come today. He beckons. He stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. Will you let him in this morning? Father God, in the name of Jesus, we pray all these things, and all God's people said,